This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Welcome to the show, Amanda Steele. Thank you for accepting my voice to narrate your book. It was so great, and I had such a great time. And I know I reached out to you and said, Valerie dies in the book. I was so shocked. <laughs> I know. The show's how much attention I pay. I was like, who's Valerie? I had to go back. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got a to call Valerie. Original podcast. Yeah. I write so and, much. Um, it's like I've forgotten about her. <laughs> that's so funny. But, oh, no. Now she's, <laughs> now she's a, a product of a killer. Oh, it's okay. She's all right. She's having a happy life somewhere. She is having a happy life. My name is Amanda Steele, and I'm listening from Manchester in the UK. Imagine getting the chance to solve your own murder. For Sarah, the prospect becomes a reality after finding her dead body in the morgue and deciding that the injuries sustained indicate she was murdered. She won't let being a ghost stop her from tracking down the murderer and stopping him from killing again. However, she'll need help from someone living. She finds that help in the form of Steve, a near recluse who see ghosts, sees ghosts and isn't thrilled at the idea of Sarah appearing in his house whenever she feels like it. Can they work together and save lives, or will more women have to die? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the mystery of the book. Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. In today's show, I have a special guest, Amanda Steele, author of Ghost of Me, a book I had the pleasure of producing. It was my first fiction book and it had a character named Valerie. How fitting, right? Well, we get to know Amanda and the goods behind the story, the characters, and her love of writing. Welcome back to Valerie's Variety Podcast with your host, me, Valerie Moss. This show is about eating, reading, and creating. How these three things influence us every day. And the people that make this happen, isn't it you, or me, or our friends, So my guest today is Amanda Steele, and she is an author and copywriter living in Manchester, UK. Ghost of Me is her second novel to be converted into an audiobook. She also has a third in production. As the co-host of a book review podcast, she has become an avid listener of audiobooks to ensure that she always has enough books to review each month. She finds she can often listen while doing some more mundane tasks, which don't require a lot of thinking. We can all agree with that for sure. (laughs) So welcome, Amanda Steele, to the show. Hi. (laughs) Let's get into the book. So how did this idea come to mind? Was it something in real life that triggered your thought process or was it something that was kind of lingering for a while uh, it's hard to remember exactly I was in my own 30s so probably maybe eight or nine years ago 
And I wrote the first three chapters, but they were very short. And it was just based on the idea of what would it like be like to die, but still be a ghost and have to solve my own murder. And then just things happened and life got, got in the way. And I just put it away and forgot about it until I started doing mm. the Creative Writing Masters. And then I thought this would be a good idea to do as part of the course and get feedback on and develop it a bit more. Oh, interesting. So it was part of your schooling. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then you have kind of an audience there that you can share your ideas with. Too, yeah, right? I, think, I think it helped a lot because I developed the characters in a way that I've not really done in any of my books. I made them more complex. Mm-hmm. So I made... Definitely the, they were complex. Like I found that you really got to know the mom and the two girls very well. And then Paul, who's the antagonist, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. And he is kind of like an unsavory character. Yeah. You went into a lot of depth in that. Yeah, at the very beginning, she thinks he's Mr. Perfect and they're going to have a happy life together before she dies. And it's not like that at all. It's completely the opposite of what she thought he was. So you dug out this manuscript, you went back to school and did this class and got all kinds of feedback on it. Um, so how long was it from like the time that you took the class to when you actually decided to finish the book and release the book? Was it like a couple of months or years? Well, I went, I went back to it in the second year because it was a two-year part-time course. And hmm. I'd had it finished by the time the course had finished. And then I just did an advanced um, pre-order because I wanted to build up and go read it in public, bits of it in public and try and get a lot of interest in it before I released it. And so how long how long was that process, Amanda? That was about six months after it was finished. I put it on pre-order oh, okay. and I go to a lot of spoken word nights and I read it a few times there, made a mm. sale before it came out because I had some advanced copies. Oh, interesting. I've never been to a spoken word night, but I've heard like uh, so much about them. They're very valuable, aren't they? Yeah, well, I, I kind of co-run one because the very first one I went to, it I was really nervous and I was shaking when I had to read out. And then I can't remember how long I'd been going and the guy that ran it left and then somebody else took over. And then my partner oh. got roped into helping out. And then it looked like it was going to close down. And I thought, well, I don't really want it to close down because this is the first place that I've read out in public. So I started trying to bring more people in. And then before I knew it, I was part of the covenant team. <laughs> oh, fun. That's fun. So it's kind of, it was kind of like an organic process. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, think it, I think it's good in a way that it's the first place that I ever read at. And now I'm part of the team on it. Mm-hmm. Kind of nice. And what's the place called? It's called Speakeasy, and it's a place oh, called Stretford in Manchester. Okay. Well, that's a suitable name. <laughs> yeah, it's very welcoming. They have, like, a big lamp in the room, and they call it living room literature. So it's a bit like reading in somebody's living room, and it's a very small Oh, room. neat. Yeah. So it's really comfortable and welcoming. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever been to a speakeasy? 
a spoken word night. I've been to an open mic night with musicians, which would be similar theme when I checked out their Facebook page for this particular one. Speakeasy Manchester. It has a large living room setting and has a great vibe, by the pictures anyway. The characters that you have in the book, can you just kind of maybe list the main ones? Not really the police or anything, but list some of the main characters. And like, can you tell us if you, if they're based on people that you know, or if they're just kind of a developed character? Like, do you have a sister? Is this sister in the book based on your sister? Like, I'm so curious about (laughs) things like that. Okay, so Sarah was probably a little bit based on me with the sort of naive part at the time when I started writing it. But then by the time I went back to it, she was a different character. So I found that easier to write it then because I'd changed. So it wasn't like I was writing myself anymore. And then Paul's probably sort of started off from a few exes and then developed his own. So I've never known anybody that's done some of the things that he's done. I won't go into that. Though. So Paul <laughs> is Sarah's husband. And she kind of, just to give, give a bit of background. So Sarah was kind of a naive school girl, let's say. She started out and then she met Paul in university or just before university. She'd known him since school, but he wasn't very nice to her as a child. And then as they got older, that's when they got together. And she never really had a serious relationship with anybody else. So even right. though she's 36... Kind of like waiting for him. Yeah, so even though she's 36 when she dies, she's quite quite naive in quite a few ways. Yeah, she kind of just stuck to herself and was just her and she didn't really have like a broad range of friends even no yeah and when she was she was with Paul she because he was a chef or cook at that diner yeah Yeah. and she liked working there because it kind of gave her some chatty clients and customers that would come in and stuff right yeah okay so who's next her sister Okay, so I've got a sister, but it's not really based on her. (laughs) I I think she'd stop talking to me if it was. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, so her sister, and just to sum up, her sister was having an affair with Paul. Yeah. But she didn't find out until after she had been taken out. Okay, (laughs) and then who's next? The mum? Um, I don't really know where she came from. She's definitely not based on my mom. Okay. She just kind of developed as it went along and she just sort of reacted to Sarah and sort of developed her own character. Right. Yeah, she's kind of like in the background. She doesn't really have an opinion. She means well on all the decisions she made for the girls, right? Yeah, but possibly some bad decisions. Okay, so sort of the characters maybe started off with somebody you knew or yourself, like you said, and then they kind of just developed into these characters. That's interesting. Is the diner a place that, since it's part of like, so it's a part of the story, is it a place that 
you've gone to? Is it a diner that you love? Um, I had a couple of places in mind, but I had to Google different names to make sure it didn't really exist because the way it's portrayed in the book, I didn't really want Mm -hmm. to use a real name of something. (laughs) I don't want to get sued. (laughs) I was wondering that, like you... um through the book you mentioned like different streets and avenues and are all of them fictitious no all the places are real and sometimes I've not said the place but I've described it and people that live local would probably know where I mean anyway oh interesting that's cool I love that when it references you know an area or city or something you're familiar with yeah I just try not to get too specific when people have been murdered in alleys because I don't want people walking past thinking, oh, that character got murdered down the alley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, uh, that's not the alley I was talking about. <laughs> what about the cake? So it's so insignificant to me. Like I love that part about it. Cause it seems like she was so proud that she had the recipe for the cake and the, I and the diner. Got, yeah. I think that got slipped in about the third or fourth draft. So it wasn't actually in there and it just seemed hmm. to work. Yeah. Sometimes I have to write the whole thing and then I start thinking what would go in there and then start putting the clues in afterwards. When you do your review, you and your your edits and everything you're like oh maybe I should have a connection with whatever the bus or the shoes or yeah oh that's neat so that wasn't in the first draft okay and is it a recipe that you love or is it just a totally random it's just something that sounded nice but I've never had it (laughs) it does sound good I thought maybe that was like a family recipe or something it was like a carrot spice cake or something right uh, I think it's a brownie with cinnamon or something like that. Cinnamon, are, that's right. There's, yeah, a lot, there's a lot of sort of different kind of fancy places around here that sell strange stuff. So I kind of just picked up on that, really. Yeah, I like that little tidbit about the food. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Because in like throughout the story, there's a bit of a connection with the murderer and the food, right? Yeah. <laughs> Paul is not a great guy. No. (laughs) Um, And we kind of touched on him already, but like, just kind of, can you describe him a bit in more detail? Cause he kind of, he doesn't have a huge part in the book, but the small parts he has are significant. Like he is a dirty dog. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's very controlling. And I think Sarah doesn't realise while she's alive that she's being controlled by him. Yeah. Like it's putting her down, but sort of in a subtle way. And she keeps telling herself that he doesn't mean it like that and she's taking it the wrong way. And he's got this side of himself that he goes into, we don't want to give too much away, but he goes into this place up the street and yeah. he's blandering a bit yeah to see a woman who's working (laughs) right a working woman (laughs) plus he's having a little affair with her sister as well yeah and who knows who else yes (laughs) yeah and who knows right he's like kind of that kind of character 
was there a premise of the book set in the UK? So we kind of talked about some of the streets and stuff. So you said people there would probably know yeah. sort of where you're talking about, maybe. Yeah. Can you share some of those with us or do you want to kind of keep it more of a secret? I think there's a scene where it might be Shelley's trying to get, he's trying to encourage Shelley down an alley, the murderer. And Mm -hmm. there's a cinema nearby. And I think that's easier for people to figure out where it would be. And she's trying to get help from passing cars. So I think people would know where that is. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay. So you kind of, you kind of were at this place and thought that would be a good scene in your book. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Because you know what's interesting about that was when you read a book and you're picturing what's happening as the reader. So you're kind of thinking, okay, dark alley, there's probably some graffiti, you know, there may be a few people sleeping around or whatever. When it's really a place that you could drive by, it just gives it so much more solidification that it's really is a place that this could happen yeah yeah I love that I think that helped me as well when I was writing it because I was picturing the places in my head at the same time Mm -hmm. have you traveled a lot or are you kind of more just stick to home and use your areas you know your influence on your book places I've lived in a few different places, but I've not really put okay. them into books. Hmm. I mean, I'm sure the UK has a lot of, well, you have so much more history than where I live. Like our country is so young, right? But yeah. Um, yeah, that's neat. Some of those, some of those back alley shots, I mean, we would picture the scariest of the scary. Hmm. And yeah, now we know some of them are really a place you could visit that would make it more haunting (laughs) I don't know why someone would want to visit if they think a character's being murdered down there (laughs) well it's you know curiosity right yeah when we were kind of conversing a bit about the book you mentioned that you'd put it away for quite a few years yeah and like five or six years or something like that yeah and then um how many other books do you have kind of tucked away do you have other manuscripts sitting there that are waiting to be finished I've got one that I wrote and it got accepted by an agent but then it never got placed anywhere by a publisher and I just put that in a folder and that was back when they had floppy disks for computers so yeah. I've got a disc that I can't use anymore and then a load of printed out Word documents and some that's handwritten as well. So if I went back to that, I'd have to probably just work from them and type everything in. And it'd be different now as well because I've changed a lot with my writing since then. Right. Do you ever write under a pen name? Yeah, I've got a pen name because I got accepted by a publisher a while back and that went wrong. And while I was waiting for the book to be, the rights to come back to me from the publisher, I republished it. So I had the pen name so I could tell people not to buy that one and to buy the one with the new name so they didn't get mixed up. Oh, 
That's terrible. So something happened? Yeah, it was a publisher and it didn't pay anybody any royalties. And there was a lot there was a lot that happened after that that I'm not gonna go into because it's it's not that no, interesting. No, no. I stuck with the pen name for that and then the follow-up book and then I just went back to using my own name for the other books then. That's interesting. Um the more that I do this audiobook narration, the more I find out that there's just so many pen names. I had no idea that so many people wrote. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think people don't want their name on or want to publish under another name? Can you shed some light on that? Um, I don't know, because my reason's a bit unique, but I can see if there's something embarrassing in it. But then there's the other thing that I write a lot of genres as well. So I can see if people are doing different genres, they might want to have a pen name to separate it from horror if they're doing a comedy or something. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I've toyed with the idea of writing a children's book. And if I did that, I think I'd use another pen name as well. Because the last thing I want is for somebody to buy my children's book and then think, what else has she done? And then buy this book for the the child, because then they'd be traumatised. I see what you're saying. Oh, that makes really good sense. Thank you for sharing that with me. So you've done a Facebook Live promotion when the paperback came out for this book? Yeah. How long has the paperback been out? Only since the beginning of March. Pretty recently. Maybe you can send me a link to that. Did you record your Facebook Live? Yeah, I did. I think I I got it on YouTube as well. My partner took it off Facebook and I got me a link and I put it onto YouTube. So you have a poem that you started your book with. Haunting my own life. I'm a ghost haunting my own life, trying to remember how not to be forgotten. I'm a ghost, but my heart still beats. Now I'm slowly fading. Soon there will be nothing left. I'm a ghost, watching, listening, wishing. I was still part of something. While everyone else gets to live. I'm a ghost, though I still have breath. Everything plays out in front of me, but it's all just out of reach. Do you start all your books with a poem? Um, no, but I'd written this about a different subject and then I just thought it fits in with the book. So I thought I'll put it at the beginning of the poem, at uh, the book, sorry. It's the first time I've actually put a poem in a book. It's not a poetry oh, book. Oh yeah, I thought that was yeah. so good that you did it that way. Just kind of an interesting, you know, instead of like your typical prologue, which you have, but a little bit of another 
kind of thought process on it. If you don't mind to read, uh, you know, maybe a start of chapter one or a few minutes into chapter one to give us an idea yeah. of the story. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay. Thank you. I never imagined my own death. Why would I? I was 36 years old. I had years left, or so I thought. I changed my mind about that when I woke up in the morgue. The dead body, my dead body, laid out in front of me, provided a good indication that I no longer needed to draw breath. My eyes were open, and I could almost imagine I was staring at myself. Yet I struggled to look away from the shell I used to inhabit. My eyes wandered from my bruised face to the red mark on my neck, as if I was punched and strangled. I closed my eyes. Maybe this would be gone when I opened them again. I'd have a laugh at the weird dream I had about being beside myself in the morgue. A brief memory popped into my head, hands gripping my arms. Then the image faded. I opened my eyes to find my corpse wasn't gone, though. It seemed to be taunting me for thinking I could make it not real. Did somebody do this to me? I asked my dead self, only to receive no response. She just laid still. I wondered if all dead people looked like, well, like they'd been scared to death, I suppose. Perfect. When she's kind of in that morgue area and she's trying to call out but nobody hears her. That is so haunting. You you could picture yourself just being trapped in this drawer yeah, that, that you would that see would in the movies. That would be really scary, yeah. <laughs> It'd be so scary. Yeah, I was like, okay, let's get into this book now. <laughs> so what other books have you written, Amanda? I've done a couple of zombie books. Uh, one's a short novel called After the Zombies. And the other one's a full-length novel that follows on called Not Human. They're, they're about zombies. <laughs> they're about zombies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead, and it was only about three or four years ago that I thought, I've never written about zombies, but I'm a big fan of them, so I should write something. I only got up to about, I think, season four or five on Walking Dead, and then it just got a bit too crazy for me. Maybe I'll pick it up again and see if I can finish it up. I liked it a lot in the beginning, and then it kind of got a bit crazy. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm a big um, fan of Daryl, though. You know, the guy on the motorbike with the bow and arrow. Yes. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> I used to have a big poster um, with him on my wall. <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> I did. Oh, I cool. don't anymore. <laughs> but at my old oh, place... <laughs> Whoever's moved into my place? old place would have seen a big poster on the wall. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So do you work full-time or are you a full-time writer? I started doing copywriting just before the virus started and the lockdown and everything happened. And then I lost a lot of work through that and slowly building it back up again now. We're going to touch on COVID, but before we do, I thought I would just let you know that I originally recorded this in June of 2020, you know, in the middle of this pandemic. 
The show was edited late in 2020, as I sit here today on Christmas Eve, enjoying a little studio time, when the second wave is in full swing across the world. And currently, Calgary, where I live, is in a semi-lockdown state. We cannot socialize with anyone out of our cohorts. Yes, weird word, I know. But we cannot socialize with anyone out of our home residence, at the time of this editing, anyway. The world, as of today, has reached 76 million COVID cases and 1.6 million fatalities. It has touched the world. Oh, yeah, I know. It's so crazy, hey, this whole thing. We Let's just touch on that a little bit because doing these interviews during COVID has been so reflective. I interviewed another author actually in the United States and he said, please don't have us on video because I haven't got my hair cut. And I was (laughs) like, oh, it's so crazy that, you know, it's just such a long reach. How is it where you live? Is it getting under control? Is it safe? Give me some perspective of what you're going through there. There's like half the people that are worried and the other half are just acting like everything's normal. I know. We have that too. We have that too. And what kind of cases, like what's the number of cases you have in your city? Oh, I'm not sure. What I had to do, I had to turn off the news app on my phone because I got fed up of it within a couple of months. Because it was every 10 minutes it was going off of all these news articles and there's nothing you can do about it. So it doesn't really help to know. So I had to turn the alerts off. I was the same way, actually, when it first hit our country. And I would listen every day and have my coffee and get all the updates. And then I was like, I got to stop this. Like, it is so was so bad. Like, in our province, we have about 7,000 cases. Um, and there's that's how many we've had in total. And there's about 400 active cases in about 2.5 million people. Yeah, I think the numbers are quite high over here. But then there's a lot of people that read the news and just say it's lies. So <laughs> who knows? So is there a lot of that as well? Yeah, I think it helps them just get on with things to not believe it. Right, right. Have you known anybody that's been affected? I know one person who had it and even though they've recovered, they're still having symptoms months later. And I know three people oh. who have lost somebody in the family. Oh, gee. That's terrible. I don't know anybody um, that's been affected any in any sort of severity, but we've had a lot of outbreaks here in our city in long-term care and um, meat processing facilities. We process 80% or something of the beef in all of Canada here in our city or just south of our city. So that has been an issue. Is everybody there wearing masks and things? Not that many. You're supposed to wear them on public transport. And my younger sister has to go to work on three different buses every day. And she says people just get on wearing them and then pull them down when they're sat on the bus. What? Does that defeat the purpose? I think so. Like we wear them here, our transits. Yeah, our transits mandatory as well. Yeah. Um, And we wear them like in grocery stores. 
things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Are you guys on the other side of the worst of it? Or are you still kind of in the... If you listen to the the news and things and they're relaxing it now, then you'd think it's getting better, but I'm still being cautious. Yeah, we're still being cautious too. Are you kind of like isolated then? We go out for a walk, but we try to move out of the way if there's people coming on the other side and generally people just walk Same. along in the middle of the path and I run into the road. <laughs> Some people just are... In their own world, right? Yeah, but I, I was quite happy to stay. Thing. I was quite happy to stay two meters away from people before, though. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I was like, "You're a little close for my comfort." But you have way more people there. Like, how many people live in Manchester? Oh, there's a lot. Yeah, like millions, right? Like several oh. million, ten million. Oh, I'm not sure if it's that many. I'd just say hundreds of thousands. I don't have an exact figure. I'm just guessing. So. Oh, hundreds of thousands? It's a smaller city? I'd have to Google have it, to actually. I'm just randomly it. guessing, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No pressure. Um, no pressure. It's interesting listening to Amanda and how she knows people. And the discussion about masks is so surprising, especially mid-pandemic. Amanda lives in Manchester, UK, which has a population of 2.7 million. And their case count as of today, in late December 2020, is 35,000 active cases. Similar to where I live. One more person I want to talk about is Steve. Yeah. Before we move off the book entirely. So Steve's just kind of like an average Joe guy who happens to be walking down the street when Sarah kind of discovers that she's a ghost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And she's talking to herself saying like, what the hell is going on? Like, where am I? And how did I get here? And then he, as a human being responds to her. Yeah. I so, love Steve. Yeah. Can you talk about Steve a little bit? Well, he actually started off as a character called Simon, but then I wrote a few pieces a few years after with people called Simon in and I met an actual Simon and I thought, I better change his name or it's going to look like I'm writing yeah. about him. <laughs> and, um, He's kind of got like a warped sense of humour. He's very dry. Yeah, I think he's got my sense of humour. Is that your sense of humor? <laughs> so tell us, so tell us a little bit about Steve and like he has this uncanny ability to see dead people. <laughs> see dead people. That yeah. is what she said. Not only see them, but hear them. Yeah. Even though he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. And it's kind of made him a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's led to quite a few things going wrong in his life. And he smokes a bit too much pot. And he drinks a bit. Yeah. And he's he's a bit slobby. Yeah, basically ruined his career and his education trying to avoid these ghosts. Yeah, is he somebody you know? Obviously not seeing ghosts. But is he... um, is he like a cousin or something? I'm curious because 
so many authors write, you know, be on based on their own life experiences, right? And their own um, friends or family or whatever. Is he somebody you know? No, I don't think I know anybody like that. <laughs> <laughs> you probably won't. You wouldn't want to tell me anyways, and that's okay. <laughs> he, just, he just kind of developed as the story went along. Yeah, he's kind of... Um, He's kind of a neat guy. And I think, you know, once you get to know him throughout the book, he's somebody you'd want to be friends with because he's very smart. Yeah. And he's um, pragmatic about things, right? Yeah. I've toyed with the idea of doing a follow-up and I think he's going to have to pop up at some point if I do that. Hmm. A follow-up would be good. I'd be into that, figuring out how it all... uh, unravels yeah um well I wanted to thank you again for choosing my voice to read your story and if you want me to record anything and send you any audio clips of anything separately I'll be happy to do that um do you have any feedback for me about the quality of my voice or anything I could have done better or different no, like I, think, I think it was really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I said I wouldn't have picked you if I didn't like it. Oh, thank you. Yes, I guess so. <laughs> um, do you want to plug your socials for me? Where can we find you? Where can we see some of your live? Um, uh, I'm on Facebook quite a lot. I've got okay. an author page, which is Amanda Steele Writer. And are you working on something right now that you'll be releasing soon maybe or well I've got a book with a publisher they're actually in based in Canada but they're struggling at the moment and I've not had any royalties since August so they've offered me the option oh, wow. of getting the um, rights back to it so I'm working on re-editing that before I take the book back and self-publish it because I've also got the second that's almost finished and I've started on the third oh wow cool when you have a book at the publisher, are they having difficulty because of COVID or is no, it just? They had some problems last year for various reasons with um, companies not paying them out so they couldn't pass the money on to the writers. And then I think COVID just sort of added to that. Right. Do you find that COVID is uh, becoming a, a little bit of an excuse or do you think it's really a serious as they're making it out to be it's hard to know really it's hard to know i agree well to conclude thank you amanda Steele, for taking the time to be interviewed on my show i loved talking to her about her book and getting to know the author the first author who i read a fictional book for it was such an experience for me I thought at the end of the show, I'll play you chapter one. And if you're interested in hearing more, please let me know. And I can give you a free download credit to the complete audiobook. Until next time, eat, read, and create. And if you do any of these things, share them with me. I love to hear from you. If you ever want to be a guest on my show, reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. Check out my website. There's always new goodies being posted. Links to Amanda's work are also in the show notes.
Take care, everyone. Enjoy chapter one. Follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook group, Valerie's Variety Pod. Instagram, I'm at Valerie J. Moss. You can follow me on my website at ValerieMoss.ca. Email or text me also to my email address, Valerie at ValerieMoss.ca. And share your goals for 2020 with me. I also have new show music, which I love. It's called Girl, and it's by Text Me Records, Leviathan. Intro is recorded by London Moss, and the cover art in production is by me, Valerie Moss. Thanks for listening. Eat, read, Chapter 1. I never imagined my own death. Why would I? I was 36 years old. I had years left, or so I thought. I changed my mind about when I woke up in the morgue. The dead body. My dead body, laid out in front of me, provided a good indication that I no longer needed to draw breath. My eyes were open, and I could almost imagine I was staring at myself. Yet, I struggled to look away from the shell I used to inhabit. My eyes wandered from my bruised face to the red mark on my neck, as if I was punched and strangled. I closed my eyes. Maybe this would be gone when I opened them again. I'd have a laugh at the weird dream I had about being beside myself in the morgue. A brief memory popped into my head, hands gripping my arms, then the image faded. I opened my eyes to find my corpse wasn't gone, though. It seemed to be taunting me for thinking I could make it not real. Did somebody do this to me? I asked my dead self, only to receive no response. She just laid still. I wondered if all dead people looked like, well, like they had been scared to death, I suppose. I watched enough crime shows to recognize the signs of a murder. I recalled those same crime shows. Copying what they did seemed like my best option. The first step was to examine the victim. I took a deep breath although no air went in or out of my body, but the action remained the same. I twisted my head from side to side. I stretched my arms like someone preparing for a boxing match or an intense workout session might do. 
it helped to imagine I was looking for clues about what happened to a fictitious character. If I stopped to dwell on the reality of my death, I might have panicked. It also helped to have no recollection of the circumstances leading up to my death. I remembered my family and Paul. Paul, I heard myself say. I felt a warm and familiar smile appear on my face. The same smile that formed on my lips whenever I thought of him. It faded a second later. Would I ever see him again? How would he learn where I was or what happened to me? Would he be upset? Okay, that last question seemed like a stupid one. He was bound to be upset. I imagined the state I'd be in if the situation was reversed. Devastated didn't cover it. A small rumbling sound jolted me out of my thoughts. It couldn't be my stomach. Ghosts don't get hungry. I looked at the wall as a silver lift door materialized out of the brickwork. I took another glance at my body. Only then did I become aware of the slash, starting at my right breast and ending at my stomach. Someone had cut me. I really was murdered. I knew I wasn't suicidal, but even if I had been, I ruled out the chances being able to cut myself open. That much without passing out before I finished. The lift pinged and the door opened. I walked no more than ten steps, only stopping to glance back at my remains when I was standing next to the open lift. My corpse looked much further away than it should have been. I don't remember stepping inside, but I found myself in the lift. Some people might have chosen to step back out, but the buttons caught my attention. Instead of the usual ground floor, first floor, etc., one arrow pointed up and another pointed down. I tried them both, but nothing happened. Then I spotted a circle. It was lit up, and I hesitated before pressing it. I closed my eyes as light flooded the small space. The doors clicked shut, then jerked forward, instead of moving up and down. When I looked again, I was stood at the gates of my old primary school. I always believed the gates of heaven would resemble those gates. They were big and golden, almost shining in the sunlight. I was shorter. I could tell I had shrunk in height by how much closer to the ground I was. Ouch! I yelled in a much younger voice as someone pulled my hair and ran off. I realized I was around the age of seven again. I remembered the scene as I yelled, Paul! Chasing after the boy brought back memories of how this ended. I tried to get my legs to stop running, but I had no control over my younger body while I chased the seven-year-old version of Paul around the playground. My mom arrived to collect me like the first time this happened. Why does Paul always pull my hair? I asked, despite remembering my mother's answer. Maybe he likes you. She suggested. Boys are weird, I announced. 
Sarah, you're so smart. It took me 25 years to, to figure that out, my mom joked. Without warning, my surroundings disintegrated, then reformed around me. I remembered the new scene. It was the following day. I ran up to Paul before school started and handed over half of my chocolate bar. My mom says you like me. That's okay, I told him. I like you too. I leant forward and kissed his cheek. Ah, gross, he exclaimed, rubbing at his entire face as though it would spread. I don't like you. He yelled, then scurried away. A teacher found me sobbing on the playground tarmac when I was supposed to be in class. The playground evaporated, and I was in the lift again, moving backwards this time. The door opened. I found myself outside a morgue and at the right height again. The lift vanished. But the people walking and driving past didn't react as though they had seen anything unusual. That's when I spotted him heading towards me. If my heart still worked, it would have sped up. Paul! I cried out as he walked away from the morgue. Paul! This was the Paul of the present day. As I caught up with him in the nearby car park, I noticed he looked tired and his eyes were red from crying. I found myself hoping those tears were over me. Please, I begged. You have to be able to see me or at least sense that I'm here. All our years together should mean we shared a connection which would tell him I was still around. How could he not sense me? I reached out to touch his arm, my hand pressing through, without so much as a shudder from him. Please, I whispered. Hi, he said, although it sounded more like a sigh, and he didn't sound happy or surprised. Oh, thank God, I gasped, not caring about his lack of enthusiasm. I'd snapped at him later. For the moment, it was enough for me that he realized I was still with him. I knew we had a strong connection. There was no reason he shouldn't pick up on my spirit still hanging around. Is she inside? I heard my mother's voice from behind me. It struck me. Paul was talking to her, not me. I wanted to cry, except it turned out I couldn't do that anymore either. Yes, but you shouldn't go in. She's not how you remember, Paul began. I want to see her. I admit it's been a while because... Never mind. She's still my daughter, my mother insisted, dabbing her eyes. I leaned closer to check for any actual tears. It wouldn't be the first time she pretended to cry. I felt a pull, taking me to somewhere else, but tried to stand my ground. No, I demanded, I need to know. But the magnetism was too strong, yanking me away from the street into what felt like nothingness. I became trapped in darkness, maybe for days. Time spread out like the dreams I used to have of endless corridors that went on and on, never leading anywhere. I had to close my eyes because my mind started playing tricks on me. 
making me believe I saw movement in the dark. At first, it was just shadows. Then my eyes created the visible outline of a woman, curvy with long hair and someone else. I couldn't make out who either of them were or determine the gender of the second person. I only knew that I didn't want to watch because something bad was about to happen to the woman. When I dared to open my eyes, the darkness lingered, but I knew I was in my bedroom. I could just make out Paul lying there in the middle of the bed we used to share. It reminded me of the times I used to get up and read books on my tablet as he slept. Occasionally, I'd glance up from the vintage reading chair and perceive his outline asleep on the bed. My comfort at seeing the familiar sight quickly turned to annoyance at him for taking over my side of the bed. I didn't need sleep anymore. His actions still seemed so careless. Shouldn't he be putting my favorite item of clothing over a pillow and falling asleep with his arms around it, maybe while crying? I didn't want him to suffer. It didn't seem like he had just lost his fiancée, though. I took a step forward to have a closer inspection. Although his eyes stayed shut, I guessed he was awake. I could always tell. He spent all his time thinking, except when he slept. That's the only time he ever looked peaceful. I saw that he appeared to be far from peaceful so close up. His eyes twitched, and his mouth hung open as if he wanted to call out for help. Maybe he was asleep, after all. He was having a nightmare, but I experienced a twinge of relief. Paul. I knelt by the bed and whispered his name. He didn't hear me. As my eyes adjusted, I noticed the damp on his cheeks. I felt a rush of guilt over my earlier thoughts and longed to wipe his tears away, then soothe him by rubbing his back the way he used to like. How long have I been gone? I asked. Again, no answer. Even before I spoke, I understood that my words were wasted on him. I needed to listen to my own voice, if only to confirm I was still there, even if I wasn't all there. That's it, I thought out loud. I'm just crazy, and I'm in a psychiatric ward. Although I knew deep down that as crazy as everything seemed, it was all real. Paul, I said again. I cried without actual tears once more, which made me feel worse and like I had turned into my mother. I don't understand why this happened. None of this makes sense. I reached out my hand to touch his face, but he didn't react. Could he really feel nothing when my hand passed through into his jaw? I snatched my hand back, freaked out by the unnatural sight. Horror movies never struck a chord with me. Crime drama, maybe. But not make-believe monsters or ghosts. Of course, I understood by that point, ghosts do exist. Monsters, I'm not so sure about, other than the human variety. 
I had no sense of time to determine how long I stayed crouched by the side of the bed before the familiar droning of the alarm clock broke the silence. I never understood how anyone ever believed the awful noise might be a good way to start their day. Paul dragged himself out of bed to get on with his day. I always told him he worked too hard. He was the type of guy who would wheel himself into work with two broken legs unless someone stopped him. Who would stop him from pushing himself too hard now? Now is not the time to be strong, I called out after him as he went into the bathroom. I admit I was a bit riled at him going into work at a time like this. I mean, I died. Didn't that grant him some time off? I assumed it to be his way of coping by trying to get things back to normal. Ten minutes later, he left for work. Bye then, I called out as he ambled out of the door. By now, I'd given up on him ever seeing or hearing me, but it presented itself as a better alternative to saying nothing. I wondered if I should go after him. If not, what should I do all day while he's at work? I thought of my mum and sister. I hadn't seen my mum since that night outside the morgue, however long ago that was. I couldn't even remember the last time I'd seen my sister, or my final words to her. I decided to check in on my mother.